You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's midnight when you decide that you just can't stay awake any longer. The restless, tormented nights and long, stressful days have drained you completely. The coffee does nothing but burn a hole in your stomach, and the TV is, at this point, little more than a droning, pulsing light vibrating through the room. You need to sleep. You turn off the screen, grab a slim paper bag from the table, and shamble to the bedroom. You twist on the bedside lamp. The air is thick and stagnant, so you open the window and stand for a moment looking out at the empty street below, at the silent cars and the single, lonely streetlight humming in the night. You shiver at the coolness of the air as it climbs through the open window and slips along the floor. You face the bed and let the bag's contents slip onto the comforter. A crisp copy of the Holy Bible, the receipt still tucked inside. You riffle through the gilt-edged pages, then open the drawer of your bedside table and remove your grandfather's old pocket knife. You click open the blade, set it on top of the Bible, then tuck both beneath your pillow. You get into bed, turn off the lamp, and stare at an orange bar of light bending across the ceiling and onto the wall by the door, cast by the streetlight outside. You turn to your side and stop yourself from mindlessly slipping your hand beneath your pillow as your mind begins to drift. Your last thought before sleep takes you is, this had better work. Hours later, you wake flat on your back, staring up at the same bar of orange light. You listen to the gentle hum of the streetlight outside, and then you hear the sound of your bedroom door slowly creaking open and the sound of footsteps inside your room. Your body grows cold and unresponsive. A deep and powerful fear overwhelms you, and you sense a dark presence at the foot of your bed. She's come for you again, and there's nothing you can do but wait. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. You know, many of the episodes I've written for this podcast are about certain stories from specific regions or communities across Canada. Whether they're legends of ghosts, monsters, or people, they're connected to a certain space and time. They might share similarities with other stories, but they are unique to their geography and are often set at a specific time, usually early in the nation's history. However, the same can't be said for tonight's story. Tonight, you'll hear about a disturbing and some say paranormal phenomenon that spans centuries and cultures. Often described as an evil or malevolent presence, it's known to attack without prejudice or provocation preying on those who are asleep and at their most vulnerable. The attacks last just minutes, but you're so helpless, so fearful in these moments, that the experience will haunt you forever, if you survive. Many believe that you can die from the encounter unless you or those around you know how to stop it. 
As shocking as the experience can be, it's surprisingly common. There's a good chance that you have encountered it, perhaps without knowing its name. And if you haven't yet, you might very soon. Studies suggest that about one in four people will fall victim to this terrifying experience at some point in their lives. Now, here's the Canadian connection. If you're in Newfoundland, those odds are much, much higher. It's been estimated that as many as 3 in 5, or 60% of the island's population, have had this experience. This explains why the communities in Newfoundland are such a rich source of folklore, superstition, and, of course, bone-chilling stories about this strange and fascinating phenomenon. A phenomenon that has been linked to demons, spirits, and black magic. In this episode, we'll do our best to understand more about this nocturnal terror and learn what we can, mostly through Newfoundland folklore, about its nature, its cause, and the steps we can take to stop it. This dark and ancient thing has many names throughout the world. In Newfoundland, they call it the Old Hag. When Tom was a teenager, he would spend the summers at his grandparents, who lived up on a hill overlooking the bay. At night, he would wander across the hillside and look out over the black water. Sometimes the moon and even the stars were hidden behind a thick layer of cloud, and it was so dark he could barely see the ground as he walked. It was a night like that when she first came to his room. Everything was still and dark when he woke to the sound of footsteps plodding softly up the wooden stairs. His bedroom was on the second floor at the far end of the house, and from his bed he looked through the doorway towards the stairs at the end of the hall and saw a hunched, dark figure slowly ascend and turn at the top of the stairwell. There were more footsteps as it moved down the hall and into his room. Tom's first thought was that he was dreaming. He closed his eyes and willed himself to wake. He opened them again, but the thing was still there. A black figure sitting, or maybe kneeling, at the foot of his bed. Tom got the distinct impression that it was looking at him, and he thought how odd it was that something could stare so intently, despite the fact that it didn't have any discernible eyes or even a face. He blinked again, but still it was there in his room, and he felt a terrible fear in the pit of his stomach. He tried to bolt from his bed to run to the light switch and turn it on, or run to his grandparents sleeping soundly across the hall, but he just couldn't move. He lay there for what seemed like hours, with this thing watching in the darkness. When morning finally came, he woke shivering, coated in a cold sweat. The following night, Tom closed his bedroom door before he went to bed. Then woke again to the sound of someone coming up the stairs and down the hall. He waited breathlessly when the footsteps halted outside his room, then began to panic when the door squealed open. The figure, a crooked old woman it seemed to him now, crept across the floor and stood at the foot of his bed. Again, he was unable to move, whether it was his own fear that kept him there or some unseen force he couldn't say. 
He closed his eyes and said a prayer. More footsteps. Now to the side of the bed. And now silent. He opened his eyes to a black and empty room. He could not, dared not look to his left, though he could feel her there, feel her intent. He could smell her, too, a scent of dust and earth and death. He felt the mattress sink below his left shoulder as she climbed onto the bed. He squeezed his eyes shut. It's just a dream. It's just a dream. It's just a dream. Two hands pressed into his shoulders, and he felt her crawl across his body and perch upon his chest. He struggled to breathe under the crushing weight and kept his eyes closed. He felt her weight shift, felt her palms dig into his collarbone and pin him down, felt her hair across his face. He opened his mouth to scream, but nothing came out. His voice was trapped below his sternum and behind a tangle of sticky, stringy hair. After several minutes of excruciating pain and complete terror, she was gone and he could move. He leapt from his bed, turned on the light, and spent the rest of the night on the floor with his back against the door. Tom never again spent the night at his grandparents' house. Part 1. The Phenomenon Scientists call it sleep paralysis. But while that may be sufficient in characterizing the basic physical elements of the phenomenon, it does nothing to describe the very personal and often terrifying experience for its victims. In his authoritative book on the subject, The Terror That Comes in the Night, Dr. David Hufford developed an index of features, a list of the key elements of a visit from the old hag, gathered from numerous first-hand accounts within Newfoundland and without, from communities in eastern Canada, Pennsylvania, Nebraska, California, and Kentucky. There are a total of four primary features that are essential for an experience to be labeled what Hufford calls an old hag attack. First, there is an impression of wakefulness. Most commonly, you lie down, fall asleep, and wake a short time later. At least, you think you're awake. It's not completely clear one way or the other. It certainly feels that way, since you can see, hear, and feel your surroundings. Second, you find yourself unable to move. You try to rise, turn, or scream, but your paralyzed body doesn't respond. Often, this is followed by the feeling of a crushing weight on your chest, pinning you down. Other times, you might feel as if you're being restrained from below, sometimes by multiple hands. Third, you accurately perceive your environment. At first, things might be hazy, but eventually you perceive that you're exactly where you expect to be. You'll often be able to hear your roommates in another part of the house or the sound of cars passing outside. This, of course, adds to the impression of wakefulness. You're not in some dream world or past memory. You are where you should be. But something doesn't feel right. Which brings us to our fourth and final feature. Fear. Victims of these strange attacks report, above all else, a deep feeling of dread or profound fear that often persists long after the experience is over. Now, that is the old hag phenomenon at its most basic, but there are a number of secondary features that, while mostly common, aren't consistent in every case. These include one of the most common and most chilling features, sensing an evil presence in the room. 
Sometimes it's little more than a feeling that something is lurking in the shadows at the foot of the bed. Other times you might hear breathing, whispers, voices, laughter, or footsteps. It's also common to hear your door creak open or slam shut, or the sound of scratching along the floor or at the window. Sometimes there's a distinct scent of sweat, dust, or general foulness. The entity can get quite physical as well, pulling off the covers, slipping into bed beside you, sitting on your chest, and even grabbing, hitting, or choking you. Sometimes you'll be unlucky enough to actually see the hag yourself. As the name suggests, the entity often appears as an ugly old woman, but not exclusively. Some victims have described the hag as more of an obscure shadow, while others have seen a glowing white figure. It can appear as a man or a woman, sometimes known to the victim, sometimes a complete stranger. It has appeared as an animal, a formless vapor, a terrifying mask, and as both a disembodied face and a faceless form with, paradoxically, two piercing eyes. Now, if some of this sounds familiar, that's not surprising. Even if you haven't experienced it yourself, you'll find accounts that match these details in countless books and North American and British TV shows about true paranormal encounters, where they're often cited as a visit by a ghost, a demon, or increasingly, an alien from another planet. The sleep paralysis explanation is much more recent. Though the term was coined by British neurologist Samuel Wilson in 1928, it wasn't until the late 20th century, when scientists really began to study the phenomenon, that the term became part of the popular lexicon and finally gave sufferers a way to commonly identify and communicate their experience and realize they're not alone. In fact, the phenomenon is surprisingly common throughout history and around the world. The Japanese call it kanashibari, once depicted as a giant devil's foot that crushes a sleeper's chest, it's a well-known and well-researched experience that has been the subject of multiple studies. The Chinese call it Bei Gui Ya, or held by a ghost. Similar to the old hag, the Gui Ya is thought to be a ghost that sits upon your chest and assaults you. In the West Indies, sleep paralysis is caused by Kokma, the spirit of an unbaptized baby who leaps onto your chest and strangles you. The experience has countless names throughout Europe and can be found in Christian texts, Norse sagas, and in the medical publications of Roman antiquity. The settler populations of North America, by contrast, are much younger and more culturally diverse. For much of our short history and throughout most of the continent, there has been no single shared term for this phenomenon, which has undoubtedly led to many awkward conversations at the doctor's office. But like anything else, there are exceptions. There are people and places in North America whose historic cultural and physical isolation has fostered or preserved certain folkloric traditions on the subject. One good example is the Acadian Cauchemar, the French word for nightmare that, in Acadian communities, has become a legendary character who, at best, pulls at your toes, and at worst, kills you. And then there's Newfoundland's Old Hag. Virtually unheard of in the rest of Canada, it's almost a household term in the province. And the details of the eerie experience are often discussed amongst friends and family. Such was the case for Christine, a woman from St. John's who first experienced the hag as a young girl, not realizing it had a name. 
Later, her grandmother, a woman who grew up in a long-vanished community on Trinity Bay, shared with her her own experiences. Christine has graciously given me permission to share her memories and family folklore on this podcast. Here it is, read by Emily Kellogg, the very talented co-creator of the award-winning Canadian horror fiction podcast, Parkdale Haunt. I was probably 10 or so when she told me. I remember it so well because she was a good storyteller. Still talks your ear off today at 91. And also because at the time, I realized I had also experienced it myself. She told me that the old hag comes for you in your sleep, and what makes it so terrifying is how real the dream is. Real, such that you will dream that you are exactly as you would be in reality, in your room, in your bed, lying down like you really are while you're sleeping. Same thing if you're on your couch or in a different room. In the dream, you can't move. The old hag can take on different forms. For me, it has actually been an old woman more than once. She told me that hers was always a tall man who hunched over. Whatever the form, the old hag will appear at your doorway and edge in slowly, very slowly. The figure doesn't try and sneak or conceal themselves, but just moves so slowly and quietly. That demeanor adds to the scariness, I believe. The whole time, you can see or sense their presence, but you still can't move. The man would creep closer to her bed. She described him walking and dragging a foot at a time. I remember it so vividly when she told me that part. She was frozen still, and my poppy was in bed next to her, and she couldn't get his attention. She said she would try and jerk around and force words out, but nothing ever comes out. The whole time, this figure gets closer. Eventually, she would be stiff in the bed, all tensed up and trying hard enough to move that she would eventually wake herself up. Or my poppy would wake her up. She said once, the man crawled up the bed over her feet and sat on her chest. And then she screamed and woke up. Oddly, it made me feel safer knowing she comes for everyone. We all get a turn now and then. My grandmother told me it's important to recognize it as the old hag and just a dream. She can never hurt you. When you remember it's just the old hag, your body relaxes and the dream ends. But otherwise, you are frozen with fear until it's over. I want to pause here a moment and talk about the name, the Old Hag. It conjures images of the classic old witch from fairy tales, the ugly old woman practicing her dark magic within a hut somewhere far out in the wilderness. The Dictionary of Newfoundland English tells us that hag is synonymous with nightmare, but not necessarily in the modern sense. 
See, today we use the word nightmare to define any bad dream, from being chased to having your teeth fall out to realizing that you're naked in a public place. But it has its roots in the old English word mare, a term for an evil, often feminine spirit that sits on your chest and suffocates you in your sleep. At first, it might seem that old hag is an extension of an unfair and rather sexist stereotype, the kind of thinking that led to the paranoia and savagery of the Salem witch trials. In fact, scholars like Dr. Peter Morley, a professor of health and anthropology, linked this cultural tradition to what he called primitive and sexist ideas. According to a 1981 newspaper article summarizing one of Morley's public talks, the old hag attack is, quote, an example of the way men perceive women in small Newfoundland villages, end quote, where the sexist-oriented society betrays women as evil, harmful, and frightening. The article continues, quote, Morley said, men actually identify the hag in their dreams as a particular woman and victimize her and that there isn't much a witch can do to change these perceptions, end quote. While I have no doubt that some men believed, or at least claimed to believe, that their old hag experience was the product of witchcraft, Morley's take seems somewhat shallow and a little unfair to the communities of Newfoundland and Labrador. It has long been a common practice to condescend to and even infantilize certain cultures and communities, especially those rich with folkloric traditions, and mostly composed of uneducated, working-class people. The people of small towns in Newfoundland and Labrador, traditionally reliant on the fishing industry and home to some of the richest and most entertaining folklore in the country, have long been victims of such unfair and unfounded stereotypes. One perception seems to be that, with their stories of evil witches, ghostly lights, and malevolent fairies, of course, the simple, superstitious fishermen of these tiny remote villages would hold dangerous and sexist beliefs, perceptions which are no better exemplified than in their culturally sourced phenomenon of the old hag. But generally speaking, the old hag isn't a person or a culturally sourced idea. It's an experience. You can hag a person or be hagged or be hag-ridden yourself. Plus, as we learned from Catherine's story, the old hag can take on many forms. A man, a woman, an animal, even a figureless mass, if it takes a form at all. And it preys upon men and women alike. In fact, a study conducted in Newfoundland by Dr. David Hufford a few years before Morley gave his talk found that both men and women have experienced the hag in roughly equal numbers, with no significant experiential difference between the sexes. Now, as Morley points out, it is a distinct, if not unique, part of Newfoundland hag folklore that one person can hag another by summoning or embodying the force or spirit. But while there are tales of men being hagged by women they knew, one man claimed his wife hagged him nearly every chance she got, there are plenty of stories of women being hagged as well. And it's both women and men who do the hagging. One of the most in-depth stories was recorded back in 1970 by a university student who interviewed an 80-year-old man about his knowledge of hagging people. It's stored in the archives at Newfoundland's Memorial University and was included in Hufford's book, The Terror That Comes in the Night. The tale is told as a memory and begins, I was there when it happened. 
One evening on the Labrador, the wilderness north of the island of Newfoundland, around the year 1920, a number of fishermen were drinking in the bunkhouse and enjoying the company of one of the local girls. One of the men was getting a little too friendly and trying to kiss her, but his advances were summarily dismissed. Finally, after multiple attempts and laying on his best charm, he gave her an ultimatum. If you don't let me kiss you, I'll hag you tonight. She laughed and eventually left, refusing to give in to his demands and assuming he wasn't serious about his threat. She was wrong. Soon after she left, he began the ritual to call the hag. With the kerosene lamp still burning, he stripped off his clothes, knelt by his bed, and, head bowed, slowly, methodically, recited backwards the Lord's Prayer. Amen. Evil from us deliver, but temptation into not us lead, and us against trespass. When he was done, he peeled back the covers, pulled a knife from below his pillow, slipped into bed, and stabbed the blade into the sideboard one, two, three times. The other men put out the lamp and went to bed as well, and there, in the darkness, they would hear him call out several times, Hag, good hag. Later, the girl told the others what had happened that night. She had woken in her darkened room and was horrified to see that man standing over her, a knife in his hand. Overcome with fear, she was completely frozen in her bed, her eyes locked on the phantom, foam pouring from her mouth as she tried with all her strength to scream. Luckily, her father heard a commotion in her room, came to her bedside, realized she was being hagged, and called her name backwards. That was enough to break the spell and send the man's spirit back from whence it came. Part 2. Hagging for Fun and Profit Along with being a particularly disturbing account, that story also provides some insight into how someone might go about hagging another person for their own nefarious purposes. The informant describes a ritual of sorts, stripping naked, kneeling, saying the prayer in reverse, then slipping into bed and stabbing the sideboard multiple times with a knife. It's unclear if all of those details are necessary. Do you need to be naked, or is that just how the guy slept? Do you need to stab your sideboard for every hagging, or was that just to allow the assailant to bring a knife with him for the hagging? One element seems obviously necessary, and comes up in other tales as well. Saying the Lord's Prayer Backwards Now, the notion of saying a prayer backwards to summon or invoke the powers of a demon or a spirit is quite common and can be found in other folklore within Canada, America, and Europe. The idea is that by ritualistically reciting the prayer backwards, you are disconnecting yourself from the Christian God and his kingdom. Less dramatically, in his book Mastering Witchcraft, A Practical Guide for Witches, Warlocks, and Covens, author Paul Hewson advises would-be witchcraft practitioners to recite the Lord's Prayer backwards as a way to test and liberate yourself from previous Christian conditioning. And in case you're wondering, no, you don't have to pronounce every sound and syllable backwards. 
That's a common misconception, likely stemming from the satanic panic of the 60s, 70s, and 80s that claimed satanic messages were hidden on a number of rock albums and could be heard if one played the album backwards. You just need to pronounce each word in reverse order, starting with the last word of the prayer, Amen. Now, of course, it goes without saying that there are many practitioners of Wicca, witchcraft, magic, and the like who don't believe any of that. But the fact is, for better or worse, this kind of symbolic act is associated with some popular conceptions of witchcraft and the occult. Its inclusion in Newfoundland folklore about the old hag suggests that the phenomenon is, for some at least, also tied to ideas of witchcraft. But not the puritanical, sexist notions of evil women casting spells like Dr. Morley mentioned. This is an older belief, where anyone can tap into the liminal or spiritual realm and potentially cause harm to another. We see glimpses of that in the form of the old hag in this story as well. It's not some menacing old woman who appears at the foot of the victim's bed. It's the assailant himself. Is it some sort of astral projection? what Paul Hewson calls a fetch, a name borrowed from the doppelganger of Irish folklore. Perhaps the hag has taken his form, or maybe, as the informant suggests, it is indeed his spirit that uses the power of the hag to appear in the girl's room. We don't know, but his calling out in the darkness, hag, good hag, is intriguing. Who, or what, is he praising? There's another story from Newfoundland, included in the same book, that falls in this interesting tradition of one person hagging another. It also contains an element that, to me at least, further links the folklore to popular European ideas of evil spirits and witchcraft. The story goes that an old woman was tormented for nearly a month with restless, frenzied sleep. She'd violently thrash in bed, then wake up in a cold sweat, panic-stricken. She was hospitalized and diagnosed with epilepsy, but the treatments didn't work. Finally, the old doctor from the woman's community was brought in to consult. After speaking with his patient, he learned that the old woman was not surprised the treatment wasn't working. She firmly believed that she was being witched by another old woman in the community, a woman who apparently had a reputation for such things. The doctor, being both educated and wise, knew exactly what to do. He sent his patient home with the following instructions. Get an empty bottle, urinate inside it, then cap it and place it under your bed. Keep it there for several days and await further instructions. Days later, a different old woman, the suspected witch, visits the same community doctor because she's having trouble urinating. Aha! The doctor informed his new patient that all she had to do was release the curse she had placed on the troubled sleeper. In return, the sleeper would uncap the bottle and dispose of the urine. Problem solved. Both of the women were cured. This story apparently comes from the old doctor himself, relayed to a 24-year-old man and collected by a student back in the 1970s. Now, I know what you're thinking. What's with the pee bottle? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's never explained or even touched on in the book. Dr. Hufford was merely collecting the stories, not analyzing them. But allow me to give it a shot. Part 3. Preventions and Cures When I first read the account of the old woman and her bottle of pee, 
I instantly thought two things. First, gross. But a close second was, this sounds an awful lot like a witch bottle. Let me explain. Witch bottles are counter-witchcraft objects created by people to protect themselves from vexatious witches and evil spirits. They seem to have originated in England in the mid-17th century, though the practice has also been recorded amongst the Pennsylvania Germans. Around 300 witch bottles from the last few centuries have survived to this day, mostly unearthed in dig sites or found within the walls, beneath the fireplace, or floor during a period home's renovation. I don't believe any have been found in Canada yet, but considering many early settlers came from England and brought their beliefs and practices with them, it may be only a matter of time. Now, the main ingredient of a typical witch bottle is urine, specifically the urine of the human or animal who has been bewitched. Other ingredients include pins, needles, or iron shavings, really anything sharp, as well as herbs, leaves, wood, bones, hair, blood, and sometimes tiny figures or other charms. Witch bottles seem to have been used in two distinct ways. First, as a retaliatory and curative counterspell, and second, as a preventative measure to protect the household, though that second purpose seems to be more conjecture and doesn't seem to appear in any known primary texts. People who suffered from troubled sleep, poor health, and haunted visions were told to pee in a bottle, add a few useful ingredients, stop it up, and then either boil the contents if you want to kill, torture, or severely harm your assailant, or just bury or hide the bottle if you'd prefer to simply irritate them into stopping. One of the oldest stories from 1681 tells of a woman who suffered from tormented sleep and felt haunted by some thing in the shape of a bird. A wise old man who was passing through the area told her and her husband how to create what we now know as a witch bottle and bury it in the earth. Days later, she had recovered and they learned that a man who lived miles away and who they had never met before had died due to their counterspell. Apparently, he had been a wizard and, for reasons unexplained, had chosen to bewitch this poor woman. Want more? Check out this passage from one of the earliest works on the subject, Astrological Practice of Physic, written in 1671 by Joseph Blagrave, an English astrologer and physician. Quote, Stop the urine of the patient, close up in a bottle, and put into it three nails, pins, or needles, with a little white salt, keeping the urine always warm. If you let it remain long in the bottle, it will endanger the witch's life, for I have found by experience that they will be grievously tormented making their water with great difficulty, if any at all. End quote. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? There are stories of dark magic practitioners, both male and female, perishing from the power of this counterspell, or banging on the door of their victims, seemingly in immense pain, and demanding they hand over their witch bottle so that they can finally urinate freely. So how does it work? Well, I'll let Blagrave explain. Quote, The reason why the witch is tormented when the blood or urine of the patient is burned is because there is part of the vital spirit of the witch in it, for such is the subtlety of the devil that he will not suffer the witch to infuse any poisonous matter into the body of man or beast without some of the witch's blood mingled with it. End quote. Essentially, Blagrave is talking about sympathetic magic. If you decide to bewitch me, 
A bit of my blood becomes your blood. A bit of my pee becomes your pee. The witch bottle then becomes a sort of symbolic bladder. If I stop it up, you can't urinate. If I toss in a few brass pins or iron nails, you're going to feel it. And if I boil it over a fire and ensure it stays corked, well, let's just say you'll know pretty quickly that I'm onto you, and you'll have good reason to lift your spell. Now, it's important to note that many authors have referred to witch bottles as a quaint or rustic superstition, part of a bizarre and irrational set of folk beliefs held by the poorly educated and exceedingly superstitious. But as Dr. Annie Thwaite points out in her manuscript, What is a Witch Bottle?, this kind of thinking was actually in line with much of the science at the time, considered part of learned healing and practiced across all social strata. While neither you nor I would consider sealing our pee in a bottle to be sound medical advice, I find it fascinating that, in this one story from Newfoundland, we find potential evidence that a now somewhat obscure practice has made a 300-year leap, at least in story, from the 1670s to the 1970s, from an astrologer and physician in London, England, to a small-town doctor in Newfoundland, Canada. Now, it's also worth noting that a bottle is mentioned in the previous story as well, that one about a young woman who is hagged by the world's worst romantic. But in that case, it's not clear how it was supposed to have helped. In the original recording, the informant tells us that it was the man's spirit that had hagged the young woman, adding, quote, She said after, if she'd had known he was really going to hag her, she'd have had a bottle ready and finished him before he'd have hagged her, end quote. When asked for clarification, he explained, quote, See, if you swing at a spirit with a bottle, the spirit who is hagging you will die. So he never hagged her no more, because he knowed she had a bottle ready. End quote. Exactly how a bottle is supposed to kill a spirit, and how a person is supposed to swing said bottle while they're lying in bed and foaming at the mouth, is never explained. And while this could be a misunderstood reference to a witch bottle, it's reminiscent of another, similar belief of some Pennsylvania German communities, that nightmares can be caught in a file or bottle placed near your bed. After two or three nights, the nightmare can be caught and then destroyed by burning. The case referenced in this explanation, found in Waylon Han's book Magical Medicine, told of a person who was essentially being hagged by, quote, the spirit of a black cat, under control of a witch with whom the victim had had a previous misunderstanding, end quote. Perhaps the young man was similar to the cat in this case, the difference being that he was the one calling upon some sort of evil power to send his knife-wielding spirit to his victim's bedroom. We don't really know. All we can say for sure is, if you think someone might be hagging you, grab a few bottles and get to work. That leads us back to the title of this part of the episode, Preventions and Cures. What does Newfoundland folklore tell us about how we can prevent or cure an old hag attack? Well, the answer varies depending on the perceived cause. While stories exist of people calling the hag to torment others, the bulk of recorded explanations seem to favor elements of science over the supernatural. The most common explanation that I've encountered is that the hag is a hallucination caused by quote-unquote stagnant blood. They say if you work too hard and or drink too much and then fall asleep on your back, your blood will slow to a trickle and stagnate. 
your brain will be starved of oxygen, and the hag will pay you a visit. That is why, they say, it historically favors fishermen, and more recently, college students. A combination of a poor sleep schedule and a tendency to work hard and play hard makes it much more likely that the hag will pay you a visit. This belief has made folk advice about the old hag align quite nicely with modern medical advice about sleep paralysis. Namely, get enough sleep, don't drink too much, don't overexert yourself physically or mentally, and sleep on your side or stomach. Though we're still not quite sure what sleep paralysis truly is or what causes it, our best guess is that the experience occurs when our brains wake up before our bodies. In this hazy, halfway point between asleep and awake, our bodies are still paralyzed from the effects of rapid eye movement, or REM sleep, and some theorize that, in that state, we may be prone to a sort of waking dream. We feel awake, but realize that we can't move and perhaps that our breathing is still very shallow. Perhaps we begin to panic and our brain starts to see or sense things that aren't there. Traditions that suggest the hag is, in actuality, a demon or evil spirit also suggest sleeping on your side or stomach, but not because of stagnant blood. It's simply because the hag just can't pass up an easy target. Other steps you can take to keep the evil at bay include sleeping with a Bible, a knife, or both under your pillow. The Bible, as a holy symbol, is obvious, but the knife, not so much. Remember, hag attacks temporarily paralyze the victim, so it's not like you could grab the knife and stab your assailant. My guess is the knife under the pillow is for those who experience the sensation that the hag is behind them or beneath them, passing through the mattress and headboard and pulling rather than pushing them down. Perhaps the idea is that, as the thing passes by one's head, it will make contact with the knife and either flee or perish. An interesting note here, in that story I told you about the man who hagged the girl he was trying to kiss, he had pulled his knife from beneath his pillow. Was he just a weirdo who liked to sleep with knives in his bed? Or did he keep it there as protection from those who might hag him back? That certainly is the intended use of the next sharp solution on our list, known locally as a hag board, though it's found in many cultures throughout the world. Essentially, it's a flat board or roof shingle fixed with one or more sharp, upstanding nails. You go to bed lying on your back with this thing balanced on or strapped to your chest. It's essentially a trap with you as the bait. As you lie with a rigid block of wood on your chest, the business end of the nails pointing toward the ceiling, you'll drift off to sleep with the reassuring thought that, if the old hag comes, it will climb up onto your chest and impale itself on the spikes, thus driving it away forever. Newfoundland humorist Guy Ray once wrote about how he spotted an old hagboard hanging, dusty, and unused from the rafters of someone's fish loft. Now, I would love to see one of these things in person, or even add one to my collection. And now you know why my wife no longer goes antiquing with me. Okay, so we've covered how you can personally prevent or recover from a hag attack. But how can you help others? What if you wake up to the sound of your partner, roommate, or camping or fishing buddy being hag-ridden or agrod? The most common bit of advice, explained quite well in Divine's Folklore of Newfoundland, 
is to call their name backwards, quote, in a repeated sing-song way to procure him relief, end quote. Again, like saying the Lord's Prayer backwards, this isn't about pronunciation, but simply the order of the words. P.K. Divine clarifies, quote, If, for instance, the name is Ned Long, the remedy will be Long Ned, Long Ned, Long Ned, keeping on till the patient awakes, which, however one may regard it, restores the sufferer very quickly, end quote. Divine attributes this lore to fishermen specifically, noting that it's a method used in the forecastle to cure a fellow fisherman being hagged in his bunk. So now you know the essentials of Newfoundland's folklore on the aspects, prevention, and treatment of old hag attacks. And be thankful you do, because, well, I have some bad news. Some say once you've learned about the old hag, it will come for you next. Even Dr. Peter Morley, the professor who said that Newfoundland's old hag exemplified sexist ideas, admitted that he personally experienced several old hag attacks after learning about the phenomenon while studying there. In fact, there seem to be many stories of people who travel to the province and soon encounter the old hag for the first time in their lives. But why? Why does this terrifying phenomenon, recorded throughout the world since ancient times, yet somewhat obscure in much of North America, seem so common in Newfoundland? Perhaps it's because hearing, talking, or thinking about it will attract its attention. Or perhaps it's all in the name. Part 4. A Hag by Any Other Name So what is the hag? Is it a waking dream? A hallucination of a semi-conscious mind? Is it an evil spirit, demon, or entity who walks the liminal spaces between dreams and reality? Can it be called upon through ritual or rejected with a crude trap, holy symbol, or melodic chant? Who's to say? Despite its name and its folkloric connection to witchcraft, it's fair to say that most Newfoundlanders don't consider the experience to be particularly paranormal. Folklorist and author Dale Jarvis, whose books I highly recommend, notes that people who typically scoff at ghost stories and declare that they've never had a strange or supernatural experience will, nevertheless, often have some sort of creepy story about the old hag that they can share. Though it has all the trappings of a ghostly or demonic encounter, it's treated more like one of life's little annoyances, like being awakened by a charley horse in the middle of the night. It's thoroughly unpleasant, but not entirely remarkable. Interviews conducted across North America show that many people have experienced something similar to the old hag, but are often hesitant to discuss it perceiving it as either a profoundly personal supernatural experience or a potentially troubling manifestation of a looming mental illness. Many people who are unfamiliar with the science of sleep paralysis or the folklore that came before it will keep their stories to themselves. Time after time in Dr. Hufford's recorded cases, people who were unaware of the old hag phenomenon would repeatedly say things like, you probably think I'm crazy. But the culture is different in Newfoundland and Labrador. Not everyone knows the term, but a lot of people do. Mention your experience to your friends or your family, and chances are, someone will say, oh, that's the old hag, and then proceed to tell you their own story. By giving it a name, we give ourselves permission to talk about it, 
and a handy way to quickly and easily communicate our experiences with one another. Perhaps that's why the odds of experiencing the hag are so high in the province. It's simply because they have the words to express themselves. Suddenly, they realize they're not alone, but part of a community that has experienced the same thing since at least the 1890s. And there's a comfort in that. As my informant Christine explained when she shared the story of her and her grandmother, quote, Oddly, it made me feel safer knowing she comes for everyone. We all get a turn every now and then. That's it for this episode. A big thank you once again to Christine from St. John's for her permission to share her story and to Emily Kellogg of the award-winning podcast Parkdale Haunt for her excellent performance. If you're in the mood for some thrilling horror fiction, I highly recommend you check them out. A big thank you to my friend Mike Rink for his voice talent as well. I'd also like to give a shout-out to two more of my fellow Canadian podcasters, Chrissy and Barry at the Some Weird Podcast. Hailing from Newfoundland, they've done their own episode on the subject of The Old Hag, where they share their own stories and discuss some of the tales I've shared with you tonight. Check them out if you're so inclined. Finally, thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, if you wake up tonight unable to move and sense an evil presence in the room, it's just the hag and you're not in any danger. Right? Hag. Good hag. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. This episode's sound design and mixing was by Joseph Fish. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.